for me, it's been totally life-changing and my income is 100% passive. So you really can't argue with that. I feel like most of the passive income routes actually aren't entirely passive. Um, and Udemy really, really is. Hey, what's up, you guys? My name is Michael Koshovsky, and welcome to episode 47 of That Remote Show, where we hear from location-independent entrepreneurs and professionals so you can learn to quit the cubicle and live life on your terms. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by my friend, Louise Croft, who you may know on Instagram and YouTube as Digital Nomad Girl. Louise has been a digital nomad for the past six years and has built a following of close to 30,000 subscribers on her YouTube channel where she talks about the realities of being a digital nomad. Over the years, she has built an amazing passive income business on Udemy where she sells over 40 courses and is now growing an Amazon FBA business in Australia. In this interview, Louise and I talked about why she became a digital nomad in the first place, why she decided to build a Udemy business and how she was eventually able to grow that to over $20,000 per month in passive income and how she is now funneling that Udemy income into creating an Amazon FBA business in Australia that has over 40 products. Guys, I've known Louise for several years now and I continue to be more and more impressed with her because she has a bit of a Midas touch. Whether it's building a great Instagram following, one of the most popular digital nomad YouTube channels, or a Udemy course empire, I feel like everything she sets out to do, she does a great job with. And it was so great to talk to her and get a little look under the hood of how she runs her business and how she decides what opportunities to pursue. So I think you guys are going to find this episode really insightful. Now, before we jump into the interview, don't forget to head over to Apple Podcasts or whatever your favorite podcasting app is and leave a review. It is one of the best ways to support this podcast and help it grow. You can also find the show notes along with all the resources we mentioned in the interview at thatremotelife.com forward slash episode 47. That's episode all spelled out followed by the number 47. All right, you guys, without further ado, let's dive into this awesome conversation with Louise Croft. All right, well, Louise, welcome to the show. How you doing? I'm so good. Thanks for having me. Was the last time that we saw each other in Bulgaria, in Sofia? Yeah, you were hosting me around like a pro. I don't know. You you knew Sofia pretty well. I remember you took us to a restaurant that I'd never even heard of, and I was like, oh, I kind of feel like I'd be showing you around, but you took us to some like really great places in Sofia. So, oh, it was yeah. great. What I learned from visiting Bulgaria is that Bulgarians are really patriotic, because <laughs> um, I did a vlog when I was there, and it's like one of my most viewed videos now, and almost all of the viewers are Bulgarian. Everyone's like, thanks for coming to my country. I love my country. I love Bulgaria. And it's so nice. I don't get that with any of my other videos. So yay, Bulgarians. Yeah, I did notice that was your most viewed video. I wasn't going to bring it up, but I'm glad you brought it up. <laughs> but yeah, I think that that has something to do with the fact that Bul- like Bulgarians feel like nobody knows anything about Bulgaria and that like mm. the country doesn't exist to everyone else. Mm-hmm. So then like when somebody creates something or says something about Bulgaria, but it goes like ape shit and is like, oh my God, like we were on this, you know, so uh, I've seen that with other YouTubers as well. So that's really cool. But yeah, where are you? Um, where are you at right now? Um, I'm currently in Georgia, the country. Um, so just next to Russia and Turkey and that kind of places. Um, and we're living in a ski resort called Gudauri. So we're doing a ski season um, in the kind of Russian mountains. 
I've been hearing a lot about Georgia and I have a lot of friends mm-hmm. who absolutely won't stop talking about Georgia. So let's start off with that a little bit. Like, what do you like about Georgia? Like what keeps you coming back? Cause I know that this isn't your first time there. Yeah, this is our second ski season and our third like visit. We also came once in the summer. Um, and when we first came, we kind of came on a whim. You know what being a nomad is like? You're like, yeah, sure, Georgia. I've never heard of it, but why not? <laughs> um, and that was several years ago, like I guess three, maybe four years ago. Um, and there wasn't really any other nomads. And we kind of made our own way and kind of managed to sort of work out a co-work space that was sort of just a reception area of a hostel. And it was all like very improvised. Um, and since then, it just feels like people are talking about Georgia more and more and more. Um, it's really cheap, which is always a bonus. Um, it has great food. It's really safe. Um, and Georgia as a country seems at the moment to be being very welcoming to tourists and actually nomads. Um, and they're very kind of open for business. I think they're trying to separate themselves from some of the other countries nearby and like, um, really trying to be open for business. So there's lots of cool things going on here. The government is really transparent. There's no corruption. Um, so we've actually bought a place here. Um, and we were looking at some other countries around like Ukraine and things for buying places. And we chose this one because it's really transparent. I think our property is actually registered on the blockchain, <laughs> which is pretty crazy. Um, and yeah, it's a really cool country. So we've heard lots of nomads coming here. The Wi-Fi is really good and super cheap. I just bought 10 gig today for about $3. Um, and yeah, it seems to have everything that you need. So we're very happy that the nomads are all flooding here now. I think there's actually going to be a nomad summit here in the summer that Johnny's doing. So it seems to be the place to be. Okay. So we got to go back to you buying a place in Georgia <laughs> because you're a digital nomad. What are you doing? Are you buying places? Tell me about that. I like, know. You know, why did you decide to buy a place? <laughs> like, what's the plan with that? Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a holiday let really. So we've bought a place here in the ski resort. Um, and then we obviously rent it out for like most of the year when we're not here. Um, and cause it's a ski resort, it rents mostly in the winter, a tiny bit in the summer. Um, but yeah, we're kind of just diversifying a bit of offline money, I suppose. Um, yeah, a bit of a change. So it is, um, technically our home, but we're still nomads full time. Yeah, no, I think that that's something that I'm seeing a lot more people doing is buying a property and sort of almost using it as a home base. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that, you know, like Sarah and I are planning on doing as well is to buy like a duplex in Cincinnati where we're from to kind of like have as a home base and, you know, uh, be as mortgage, you know, like neutral as possible. So yeah. I think that that's like becoming more and more common now. And especially, you know, if it gives you like residency or it gives you some sort of tax exemptions or whatever, because you own property in a different country, you know, it's, it's that much better. So, yeah. Yeah. And also because you're traveling, you're seeing like little market opportunities, which other people don't always get access to. So we came to visit this resort and, it was so much cheaper than Europe and you can do ski in, ski out and the resort's really new and it's developing really quickly. And like they're opening a Radisson hotel this season. So we just thought it was a really good chance to get in early. And obviously we're making rental income, but we're also expecting that it will go up in value. And I feel like in your hometown where everyone's buying, you know, little two up, two down like houses for their family, there's not so much opportunity to make money on property there. So it was cool for us, like when we're traveling, to kind of always keep an ear to the ground and look out for opportunities to diversify your income, I guess. 
Yeah, I know. Uh, I know Andrew Henderson, who you've had, I believe, on your YouTube channel before yeah. as well. Um, he's he was on the show here, and I know that he's a big pusher of Georgia in terms of uh, real estate. And so I'm always looking at him, and like you know, he kind of seems to put the flag down on like new real estate uh, opportunities earlier than other people. So it's interesting to hear that more people are going over there. Um, but I gotta ask. Yeah. So before you got, you know, before you were buying properties in Georgia and, you know, skiing over there for three months. A lot of people, I think, know you as Digital Nomad Girl on YouTube. How did you get started with that? You know, was that the very first thing that you did in this whole Digital Nomad world? Just kind of take me back to the very, very beginning. Um, And yeah, like what what made you want to become a nomad and then start the YouTube channel? Yeah, so the YouTube channel kind of goes pre-nomad even though nomad is in the title (laughs) um because I had a fashion blog like back when I was in university um all about secondhand clothes um I'm very passionate about like sustainable fashion all that kind of stuff so I always had a blog and then that blog turned into a YouTube channel and then when I became a nomad I was still doing fashion videos but you don't do much shopping when you're a nomad (laughs) so I was starting to do like travel videos and business advice and then I decided it was time to niche down because the channel was like all over the place with like beauty and fashion and travel and business and vlogs and all kinds of stuff so I decided it was time to choose and so I went for the nomad route as my channel focus because I thought it would have a larger positive impact on people um because there's lots of thrifting channels out there that do secondhand clothes and we're already doing it really well so I thought actually I think I can help a lot of people if I talk about being a digital nomad in a really transparent way and this was I don't know maybe like six years ago so there wasn't a ton of content on YouTube about being a nomad um and so I thought that would be a cool way for me to document the journey but also help other people get started and so here we are today. So you were, you know, you went to school to study fashion. You had a fashion blog, you had a fashion YouTube channel. What then made you want to become a digital nomad? It's kind of like, I feel like there was like a shift there. Yeah. Um, well, I guess um, now my husband, but at the time my boyfriend was um, doing software development in London um, and he was working for himself, just building apps um, like games and stuff. And he was in London and it was really expensive and he was living in this like really really divey place (laughs) Um, and had like absolutely no money and then he suddenly thought why don't I live somewhere else and like I feel like a lot of people have either seen being nomads online and thought that seems amazing or like us they kind of think they've invented it and they're like oh my gosh I'm a genius (laughs) Um, and then you discover like oh yeah people have been doing this for ages Um, so he decided to go to Estonia for a bit because it was really close to Europe it was very cheap it was the summer Um, And then he went to San Francisco for a bit, which is not a good nomad destination, but is a great business destination. So he met loads of really cool people. Um, And at that point, I was still working in the UK, um, actually doing consultancy for thrift shops. So I was doing like my dream job, essentially. Um, But then he said he was going to Thailand. And I was like, hang on, (laughs) I am going to Thailand. (laughs) This is where I draw the line. You're not moving to Thailand without me. That sounds too amazing. So I quit my job um, and we moved to Thailand together and he already had a bit of an income from software stuff, but I had no clue what I was going to do. And I was like, well, if we move to Chiang Mai, then it's the center of the world. We discovered Nomad List by this point. So we discovered the term digital nomad. Um, And so that's how we chose Chiang Mai. And we thought if we go to the center of the nomad world, then surely that's the best place to make a go of it. And 
my plan was just to speak to as many people as possible until I discovered a job that I could do. So what was that very first income for you that was location independent? So the first thing that I discovered um, as an actual plan was making Udemy courses. But while I was building up a Udemy income, I did a bunch of random freelancing things. Um, My degree was in business, so I could kind of turn my hand to a mixture of stuff. So I did a bit of journalism, a bit of PR, a bit of like admin, just like anything that people would throw my way just to kind of pay rent, which, as you know, in Chiang Mai, you don't need much money to do that. So I was just doing (laughs) the odd bits of freelancing here and there and spending most of my time um, starting to build up a Udemy income. So for those people that have never heard about Udemy, can you tell us a little bit about it and how exactly are you making, like how, what was your plan around making money on Udemy? Yeah. So I met um, someone called Larissa um, and also Johnny FD, who you guys probably all know. um, And they were making Udemy courses and they said to me, you should make a course because you already have a blog. So you already have a camera. You're very chatty. Like, it's a really great fit for you. And I was like, Oh, I don't know. I mean, what am I going to teach? I'm only like 22. Um, and you know, the kind of imposter syndrome set in and I was thinking I can't possibly do this. Um, but Larissa said to me that she would make a course with me. So we made the first course together. Um, and it was, um, how to style yourself. So it was kind of everyday fashion for everyday people. So it wasn't like big complicated photo shoot stuff or like catwalks, you know, it was just, how to discover your style and what makes you happy and what makes you feel great. So I was like, okay, I can teach that. Like, that's the kind of thing I can talk about. So we made a course together and she walked me through like how to set up a microphone and how to edit and how to make a thumbnail and like totally showed me how it all worked. Um, And after the first course I was hooked. And so I started making a couple of other courses myself, like trying to think of anything that I knew about which people would find useful. Um, But because I was like, 22 I very quickly ran out of things to teach you know I was not a world expert in very many subjects at that point um so what I started doing then was helping other people make courses so anyone who I met who was an expert in you know nutrition or um sleep or business I'd be like hey do you want to make a course um and I discovered that the demand for that was just huge because everybody wants that online income. Everybody wants that passive income. Everybody's like kind of being sold this dream, but actually delivering and creating a course is quite a big hurdle. And if you don't have a camera, if you don't have a mic, if you don't know how to edit, then it's a big job. And it's always kind of a would be nice in the future type of job. It's never a like must do it today job. So I discovered that kind of became my special like source to work with people is that they, I found myself to be almost like a personal trainer because it's like, we're filming on the 22nd at your place. (laughs) So you have to prepare the script. You have to be ready. I'll show up, we film. And then, then you just walk out the door. And before you know it, you have a passive income because I'm going to do all the editing. I'm going to do the uploading. So it kind of then becomes like an unstoppable train because you're working with somebody else. So I found for them, it was an amazing setup for them because it means they have a passive income online that they probably never would have got around to doing themselves and it works great for me because I have access to unlimited topics which I can like quote unquote teach except someone else is the teacher yeah I think you might be the very first person who I heard of who was doing this like who was essentially 
co-authoring courses. And I thought like when you told us how you did that, I was like, oh my God, that's brilliant. That's amazing. So how can you walk me through how that works, right? Like, so you, like, do you do any research on the topics that you want to create a course around? Or is it more based on like the people that you meet and like hearing what their expertise is, you decide that, you know, that's something that you want to do? It's kind of a bit of both. Um, mostly it's people that I meet. Um, and then when they say like, oh, I'm a dietitian, I'm like, okay, this course could go in about a thousand different directions. Um, so then I will look on Udemy and I will do a bunch of research into what niches I think would get, would be good, what keywords we should choose, all that kind of stuff. And then I'll come back to them with a list of like, could you teach any of these things and they'll be like yeah I can teach all of them um or you know these are more comfortable for me than others and so we kind of work on it together um sometimes I get them to send me a big list of everything they think they could do and I'll narrow it down um but generally it starts from the person the reason for that is because teaching an online course you need to be the right kind of person you need to be quite charismatic you need to be a good teacher like sometimes being the best in the world does not mean you should make a course on it <laughs> um, because sometimes people who know a subject too well actually can't teach it very well. So, and especially on camera, mm -hmm. the camera drains a lot of energy from you. So you have to be quite a high energy person. Um, and so I try and select for the person first because I've made some courses in the past where the subject has been really good, but the person hasn't really been able to deliver what I hoped for. Um, and so I've made some courses that haven't really sold. And in my opinion, that's why. And of course, for me, I only do it on commission. So we just split the income. So if it's a bad course, then I've wasted their time, but I've also wasted my time. So I try and be quite selective on who I think would be a good teacher as well as what will be a good topic. Yeah, you you mentioned very briefly kind of what I was going to ask next is like, how do you make money? Like how, what is the split like? And you said that it's a commission. Mm -hmm. So what exact, how is that like structured? And then how do you approach people about like, you know, like, is it always the same commission? Like, do you need to like negotiate with these people? Like, are they like busting your balls about the commission? Like, what is that like? <laughs> yeah, I've been lucky so far that um, everyone's just been really up for it. Um, and I just do 50-50. Um, and I think it's so great for them because they don't have to pay any money up front. And like I said, it's normally something they've wanted to do for ages and they've never got around to it. And they're starting to admit to themselves, it's never going to happen. So it's like to have half of something is fantastic. It's much better than 75% of nothing or whatever. So I've actually never had anybody query me on the percentages. Um, but I think that's because they see how much of my time it takes as well to come and film them. And I think I like to think of it as both parties almost feel like they're putting in less. So I feel like, oh, it's so easy for me because you've got years of expertise and I just can't film you. And they think it's so easy for me because I just sit down and talk to the camera for two hours and then you handle everything. So um, I generally like in any business relationship to be to feel like equals. Um, I think it stops one of you feeling like an employee. So in any business that I've done, I've always done 50-50. And the cool thing about Udemy is that they handle all the admin part for you. So you can type in any percentage split um, and you can list yourselves as co-instructors and it automatically pays it to your PayPal every month. So it handles the split entirely for you. And if you wanted to change the split in future, if they said like, actually, Louise, for some reason, I feel like I've got a big mailing list. And so I feel like I'm making most of the sales. Can we change the split? Then that is always an option. It's totally customizable. 
Yeah, let's touch on like marketing these courses because I think that for the people who've heard of Udemy before and who understand the business behind Udemy, I think that's there's like really two things that people list as like the negative Udemy, right? The mm. first one is that there's tons and tons and tons of courses on Udemy. So yes. like how do you stand out? And then the second thing is that a lot of courses on Udemy tend to be quite uh, inexpensive, um, like, you know, like $10, mm -hmm. $15 or whatever. So mm -hmm. can you touch on those and like how have you been able to take those kind of quote unquote negative things about Udemy and make them like work for you? Yeah, totally. So um, for me, choosing Udemy is someone who has a little mailing list um, so that they can get a bit of an early boost of sales and reviews. Um, my strategy on Udemy is in the first 48 hours, get as many sales and reviews as you can from like friends, family, mailing list, Facebook groups, strangers on the street, like anyone who you can get to buy your course in the first couple of days so that you can get yourself a boost and then you get Udemy's attention and then they do the marketing for you. So my marketing efforts are normally over in the first couple of days. Um, and also you need to choose the right topic. I think your course can fail before you've even started writing a script. So I'm very careful about what topic I choose and whether the size of the instructor's mailing list can compete in that topic. Um, so, you know, you would not be creating a how to code in Python course at this point because the top results have all got 10,000 reviews. And so you're not going to be able to like get that many reviews in at the start to get traction. So you need to choose the right topic. But then apart from that, I do a very early pre-launch. Um, and then I let Udemy handle it entirely after that. Um, so yeah, for me, people who should be doing Udemy courses are people who have a small or zero mailing list, but who want to get into the teaching space and who want an income which is entirely passive. I think if you have a big mailing list and you don't mind putting some time into creating a course, if it's going to be if you're willing to make a time commitment to it, then I think hosting on something else like Teachable is a much better plan because, yeah, you can charge $100, $200 for your course. And so you need much fewer sales. Um, and if you have a list that you can sell to that you think are going to convert, then I think self-hosting is much better. But for me, Udemy is for people who want entirely passive and who don't really have an audience of their own. Um, and who can teach a course which is very mass market because the sales are so the prices are so low you need to be making a lot of sales um, so you can make a lot of money from Udemy a lot of my courses make multiple thousands a month per course but that means that you need to be selling to multiple thousands of students per month <laughs> so you need to think how many people are in the world and then how many people are on Udemy and then how many people are looking at your course and then how many people are not choosing your competitor, but they're choosing you. Um, and the number shrinks down really, really quickly. So you need to be choosing a topic that is pretty mass market. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about the topic because I think that this is like, you kind of like mentioned, like one of the most important things is that your course yeah. can be dead before you even get started. Right. So can you talk a little bit more about that, that almost like Goldilocks zone that you're describing of, you know, you don't want to be going after a code Python because, you know, there's people out there who have like tens of thousands of reviews, but you don't want something that obviously doesn't exist. So like, can you talk a little bit more about like the things that you look for in order to choose uh, the correct topic? 
Yeah, absolutely. So Udemy actually has a backend um, software that they give access to for instructors. So before you even have a course, you can just sign up for an instructor account, which is free. It's just like converting your consumer account into an instructor mm. account. And then you can access this um, kind of behind the scenes stuff that they give their instructors. And what they do is that you can type in your keyword and it will recommend to you how much other instructors are making in that niche. Um how tight the competition is, whether they think it's a good space for you to get into. They'll show you the top performing courses. You can see if you could be better than them. Um, and so they actually give you quite a lot of information just anyway, because they want people to make courses in profitable niches because you do me get a big portion of the money. <laughs> so they want their customers to be mm -hmm. happy, their instructors to be happy. So that's a really great place to start. Um, on top of that, I also type the keywords just into regular like front-end Udemy to see how the competition looks and the numbers kind of depend again on how big your list is and how much demand you think you can pull in what I would probably recommend is that people aim to make multiple courses um, and I don't want to overwhelm you you know start with one <laughs> but my intention would always be to make multiple because they cross sell really well so you can kind of do more and more competitive niches as you grow on Udemy um, and, you know, then once you launch a course, you have this list of students on Udemy who you can advertise to who bought your previous course. And so what I would normally say is start with your least competitive niche, um, partly because you won't have the Udemy mailing list, but also partly because your first course will probably be your worst course because you're learning. And, you know, even now, every course I make is better than the last course. So you want to start in the least competitive niche possible and then work up to more competitive. Um, and yeah, in terms of trying to give you some quantifiable numbers, to look at the reviews that your competitors have, I wouldn't look at the students because those numbers are very easily fabricated and lots of instructors fake those, but the number of reviews are very hard to fake. So what I would do is I would look at the spread on page one and sometimes the top course will have a thousand reviews, but maybe the 10th course will have like 30 reviews. And you're like, okay, I reckon in the first couple of days I could get 15 reviews from my friends um, and in that case Udemy will give you a slot on page one as a you get this little tag called hot and new and so they kind of give you a bit of a go on page one just to see how you do they're like okay this course is looking promising let's see how it tests like organically um, and so if you can get anywhere near the number of reviews for page one then I would say it's worth competing in um, but similarly, if all the courses have like two reviews, then you're thinking, OK, there's not enough demand here. This is no good for me. So I would be looking for a, a topic where the top few courses are reasonably well ranked, but not unattainable because the same as with SEO, the same as with Amazon, the top courses are probably getting most of the sales. So if you're going to be below the fold, if you're going to be like course seven, then you're probably going to really drop off on the sales like arc. <laughs> um, so I think you want to make sure that you can aim to get into the top three over time. And in the first couple of days, you could get kind of in the top half or at least the front page. Um, and yeah, and then just keep launching more courses and cross-selling internally and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I have, um, I have a two-part question for you. So <laughs> part number one is how has your YouTube channel and sort of, you know, you have almost 30,000 subscribers on YouTube um, so how has the YouTube channel or has it helped your Udemy business? 
And then the second part of that is how has being a digital nomad um, and kind of getting to travel to all these different places helped your Udemy, your Udemy course business? Cool. Good questions. Um, so the YouTube channel hasn't really helped at all, although I think for most people it probably would, but I just haven't really focused on monetizing my channel. And I think because for most of the courses, I'm not an instructor, like I'm not visible on screen. Um, so I make quite a lot of sales from my YouTube channel on my how to do Udemy, Udemy course, <laughs> how meta, mm. <laughs> um, because a lot of my subscribers are existing nomads or wannabe nomads. And so they're looking at ways to make online income. And I talk about my income very transparently online, um, especially on YouTube. So, you know, they see like, oh, she made $20,000 in a month. Like I want to learn how to do this. And so they go and take my Udemy course. Um, but apart from that, I don't really get many sales channels um, coming from my YouTube. But people do really recommend YouTube as a marketing source for Udemy because you can put sample videos on YouTube and then people come across and buy them. Um, the reason that I haven't done that is because Udemy is already so passive for me and I love it that way <laughs> that I have just deliberately stepped back from the marketing um, and I just love that Udemy do all the marketing for me. I see, I get Facebook ads for my own courses on Facebook and I'm like, brilliant. Thanks Udemy. You can pay for that. <laughs> um, so that's a part that I love. If I wanted to do lead funnels and YouTube marketing and stuff, then I would probably move to a self-hosted platform where you can charge more. Um, and for me, it's kind of a trade-off of one or the other. So that's the YouTube. Um, being a nomad has been both the best and worst thing for courses, probably, <laughs> because a lot of the people I've made courses with, I've met traveling and I filmed with them traveling. Um, and that's been really great. But it also means that there's often people who I think would be great for a course, but we're in the wrong continent all of the time. Um, I don't always mm -hmm. travel with my equipment because these days my courses are quite high, like high end, I guess. I like to use lights and like microphone and maybe multiple cameras and all that kind of stuff. So I have all that stuff in the UK and I mostly try and film when I'm in the UK, but I do occasionally make a course when I'm traveling and I have like a kind of small setup with me, but I like to do really high quality courses and the courses on Udemy are improving in quality all the time. So in order to compete, you do need to put some effort into your production quality um, so yeah, being a nomad is like good and bad for Udemy. What I mostly do at the moment is I film when I'm home and I'll film just back to back. So you can film one course in one day. So I'll film like eight courses when I'm home and then I'll edit them slowly over the next few months while I'm away. Gotcha. Yeah. I think the other thing that I want to talk about, cause you kind of mentioned the financial numbers and I know that you've been, you know, really, uh, transparent about this on, on your YouTube channel. So I do want to talk to you about that because, you know, this sounds really great. You know, you, you work with other people. You don't have to necessarily, you know, be an expert in like 18 different subjects to create courses. Um, it's super passive. Um, so what are like the numbers that you've made personally? I know that you just hit some big, uh, you know, kind of like landmarks for yourself financially from YouTube, uh, from YouTube, from Udemy. So can you talk about kind of like the success that you've seen from that? And then also like, what can people expect? Like what is, you know, each... Um, Udemy course make um, r like roughly as like an average breakdown? 
Yeah, so I guess with most things in life, it's quite 80-20 <laughs> um, and it varies massively between courses. So I have some courses where a course takes me about 40 hours to make. I have some courses where the course over the entire history of time has made like $10 and I'm pretty sure one of those was my granny. <laughs> um, and then I have other courses which have made like, you know, I don't know, over $100,000 probably. Um, at the moment, my lifetime earnings, which is like money that goes into your pocket, is approaching $400,000. Um, and it's over about a five-year window, but it's very heavily weighted towards the latter end of the window. Of course, because you have more courses, so you make more each month than the previous month. Um, Udemy has grown a lot in that time, so I've been able to kind of ride that wave. Um, and also my courses are now very well established. So they sell better each month than the previous month because, you know, they're the top ranked for keywords like leadership. Um, so that's been really cool seeing that growth over time. Um, in 2020, it's been, I've made $20,000, um, every month for like the past four months. Um, and so it varies, wow. you know, the first month I made like $40 <laughs> and then the second month I made like a hundred dollars. <laughs> and so it takes patience and you have to build up a big portfolio. I think I've got about 40 courses now, but about 10 of them make most of the money. So, you know, as with everything, it's always quite skewed towards a few different places. Yeah. And that 400,000 figure that you mentioned is just yours, right? Not what like your like course create partners yeah. getting right yeah so the wow. the partners have made money in addition to that and udemy have made at least the same as me if not more <laughs> um from my courses so really you want to be making selling the spades not making the spades um, yeah the, the house always wins right <laughs> yeah exactly and i i know a lot of people complain about udemy because you know the margins are tough and the, there's always promotions but for me it's been totally life-changing and my income is a hundred percent passive so you really can't argue with that. I feel like most of the passive income routes actually aren't entirely passive. Um, and Udemy really, really is. Do you feel like there's still space for somebody to enter Udemy as a newbie? And the reason why I ask that is, is for two reasons. Number one, you know, Udemy has been around for a while. There's people like you or other course creators who are really well established, like you said. Um, and then the other thing is that I have heard from course creators who are not necessarily in Udemy, but are like self-hosted, that they've experienced a really big drop in the last 12 months of people buying courses. And I think that that has something to do with just there being like, I feel like everybody's making a course about everything. Yeah. So do you feel like, has that had an effect on Udemy or has Udemy somehow been protected from that? And then do you still think that there's room for a brand new person to enter the Udemy course creation um, kind of space? Yeah. So I guess the straightforward answer to that is that I definitely still do think there's space because I still make courses. And whenever I start with a new instructor, Udemy are kind of funny about you cross-selling across different instructors. So I actually don't promote a new instructor to my previous students. Um, mm. Even if, you know, if I'm launching a course with you about like podcasting, then I wouldn't send out a mailing list inside Udemy to my other people, maybe you've taken my Udemy course about how to make Udemy, like they're bound to be interested because they kind of want to be entrepreneurs. So it would be a really valuable list, but Udemy are a bit funny about you cross-promoting like that. Um, so if I made a course with you, it would be like totally from scratch. 
Um, and, you know, maybe you would have a small list. Maybe we can still ask like some friends to leave a review, but pretty much it would be from scratch. And so that's still something that I do on the regular. Um, so yeah, I definitely think there's still space because I'm living it. <laughs> um, but you do have to be really selective about your keywords. It's kind of like, it's good because the market is much bigger than when I started. Um, like Udemy has f- grown a huge amount since I started about six years ago, but it also means it's more competitive. So there's more niches, but they're a bit more competitive. So I think things are probably similarly difficult to when I started. So yeah, I think there's definitely still room, but you just have to be really smart about what niche you choose. Gotcha. I want to take um, a little bit of a shift because I know that Udemy is still something that you do, but that it's not necessarily the thing that you focus on full-time at the moment. Because I heard that you have started uh, an Amazon FBA brand in Australia. Uh, that so is congratulations true. on that. And I right. and you kind of mentioned Amazon here and there and how it's kind of similar in Udemy. So I, I, it makes sense as, as a move. But the thing that really shocked me is that I heard that you launched 45 products on Amazon. Um, <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about why you made that shift? So why... If you're making over $20,000, you know, like on average from Udemy, like why go into the Amazon FBA space and what has that experience been like and why 45 products? <laughs> yeah, it's it doesn't really follow the usual like Amazon strategy that you buy in the online courses, I know. Um, so the reason I started Amazon is because... I wanted to diversify. I didn't like having so much reliance on Udemy. And so far, it's been great, like increases every month, but you never know. Um, And a couple of years ago, they changed their marketing to stop doing the really deep discounts. And it was like a massive disaster. Um, And, you know, your income kind of like thirds overnight. Um, And thankfully, they actually did a U-turn on that, which I thought was quite like brave of them. Um, And they went back to the deep discounting and everything just immediately took off again. It's been great. But you know, you're very reliant on one place. And I reassure myself that I own the courses and I have them all offline. So if I want to self-host, then I can do that if Udemy really implodes. But I don't really want to have to start again from scratch. I don't want to wait for an implosion. Um, So I was looking for a diversification and I was also looking for just variety for my own sanity. (laughs) Like I wanted to do something different. I wanted to do a new challenge. Um, Udemy for me has become quite formulaic. I just like, you know, film, edit, upload, whatever. It's kind of always the same. So I wanted to try something different. And I also wanted to try something bigger. Um, So Udemy is a monthly income, but there's not really anything I could sell. Like maybe I could sell the courses as a kind of going concern on Empire Flippers. I've never really thought Mm -hmm. about it, but it feels more like a monthly income type of business. Whereas Amazon, you know, you can sell for one, two, three, four million. And that's kind of what we're looking for there. So it's more of like a long-term play where I don't need to be thinking about where my rent is coming from month to month. I've got that covered. So I can focus on something which makes no money for several years and then makes a big payout at the end. So that is my goal with Amazon. Yeah. So you wanted to build more of an asset, like something that you know, you could cut and like run if you wanted to. That that makes sense because I started out in Amazon, not that I had, um, not that it was like my brand, but I worked for an Amazon brand that got sold. So I'm always really interested to hear, you know, people's experience with it. So um, I was going to, the very first thing, why Amazon Australia? 
Yes. Um, yeah. And I guess that will also be a way for me to answer your wife forty products as well. <laughs> um, so <laughs> we were actually living in Australia at the time, I guess, back to what we were saying about Georgia, how when you're traveling and you're a nomad, you get exposed to these opportunities that you probably wouldn't notice if you're a local. And you obviously like definitely don't notice if you're not traveling. Um, so we were in Australia and we'd been in a bunch of other countries, like I think Thailand and stuff. And we were like, fantastic. I can't wait to go to Australia because obviously they have Amazon because they're like a first world country. And so it'd be so nice to have Amazon again because we really miss it. And we get to Australia, they don't freaking have Amazon. And you're like, what? Where am I supposed <laughs> to buy all my stuff? <laughs> um, so we were super shocked that they didn't have it. And then while we were there, we discovered it was coming and everybody was talking about it. And they were like, guys, Amazon's coming. It's amazing because Australians order from American Amazon and just wait for like three weeks for their stuff to arrive. So there was already this massive appetite in Australia. Um, but Amazon were only just launching and we were like, okay, this is a really cool opportunity. We're like going to be here right at the ground level and we're banking on Amazon being a success in Australia, but I feel like that's a pretty safe bet. <laughs> like I would back Amazon. Um, and so that was our plan. We were like, okay, we're here. This is a really cool chance. Um, and one of my other friends who is Australian had just sold his Amazon business, um, in America and so he was kind of on the market to start something new, but he didn't want to like totally start from scratch. So I was like, okay, I will do all the like day to day and you can tell me how it all works. <laughs> um, so he like mm. chooses the products. Um, he helps me, you know, when our product gets hijacked by a fake supplier and we get a bad review or, you know, a fake review and all this stuff. And he's like, okay, don't worry, I've dealt with this all before. Here's the template of the email that you send. And so it's great because he's like lived it all previously, but he doesn't have to spend, you know, 40 hours a week doing it because he's sold his business and he's not up for that. So it was just a kind of perfect timing of being in the right place at the right time, knowing the right people. I had availability. And so that's why we decided to do Australia. And then the reason we decided to do so many products is because Australia has no products on it. <laughs> um, and so, you know, you search for mm. like makeup wipes and there's like two results and one of them are computer screen wipes. And you're just like, what? Um, and, you know, it's been it's been around for about a year now. So there is more results than that now. But at the time, there was just nothing. So we just thought, OK, what we're going to do is we're going to launch as many products as possible, as fast as possible with like minimal customization, minimal branding, just minimal photography, like minimal everything, just so that we can occupy as much retail space as possible and kind of reserve our parking spaces. And then as Amazon grows, then we'll do all the stuff you're supposed to do, like get a logo printed on it and like really basic things, which we haven't been doing so far because we're just making sure we're the number one result for as many things as possible. And then we'll make sure that the number one result is worthy and able to defend itself. I think that that is so like so smart because it just makes so much sense. You know, like Australia is a large country with a large population that has not yet had Amazon. But like you said, you know, it's going to work because you can expect that it's going to function similarly to the way it has in American society. And if there's not a lot of people, but you know what's coming, you can almost like plant your flag in as many places that you, as you can. And as you know, the the platform grows in Australia, you can like fill it in. And I mean, essentially, you are going to have like so much more of like a, a, a bigger asset. So that's amazing. Um, what has that been like, though, is 45 products is 
a lot of SKUs. And I imagine that if it's 45 products, you probably have a percentage of those that have multiple SKUs for like different sizes or colors and this kind of stuff. So how in the hell are you staying sane? And how are you managing this? <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I guess it's kind of one of my skills is um, quantity over quality. Um, like I don't personally have a great attention to detail, but I can ship stuff like there's no tomorrow. Like this, you know, done is better than perfect. I'm like, yeah, why is that even news? <laughs> um, so it means I'm terrible at things like copywriting because I'll submit copy that's got a bunch of mistakes in. But if you want me to make 40 listings overnight, like, great, see you tomorrow, I'll be done. So it happens that our strategy has played really well into my own personal strengths. Um, and, you know, I got a few spreadsheets. They keep everything under control. But I think because we're not doing a lot of the stages that you would normally do in a product launch of you know, product development and customization and getting all the custom packaging designed, all that kind of stuff, I've been able to kind of batch it. So it's just find a supplier, ideally who can make multiple different products within that niche. So like, for example, we have a bunch of pet products. So it's like, okay, the same person can make most of the pet products. Um, just find someone who has good prices and be like, great, we'll take a hundred of everything in your catalog. Um, and we don't have to do photography. We just use their photography. We don't have to do packaging. We just use their packaging um, and all that kind of stuff. So I think that takes out a lot of the normal launch steps, which I'm not having to do. It's just like find a supplier, send it to Amazon um, and then move on to the next one. And now that we've got so many products, now I'm going back through and I'm like, OK, which of the products that are selling the best? Let's get packaging for those. And so then it's like find someone on Fiverr, get them to design 40 different packagings um, so it's actually worked quite well to be able to batch it like that. Um, and I don't think you could do this strategy in America because your product needs to be so perfect to launch. But in Australia, if I launch it and I've accidentally pasted in the wrong copy and it's about a totally different product, it doesn't seem to matter. <laughs> um, so I think it's been very forgiving of my personal style of like ship it um, has worked really well for Australia. So now we're going back and we're improving all the products. And that's been really enjoyable as well to like try and make them the best that they can be. Something that I've um, gotten wind of, uh, so to say, in like the Amazon space is that a lot of people are getting very worried with the coronavirus in China because um, I have, I know a few people who own warehouses in China and things aren't moving the way that they used to, right? Mm. Because a lot of things are getting shut down around the virus and, and, and trying to, you know, kind of like um, quarantine everybody and stuff like that. How have you, how has that affected your Amazon business? Um, and yeah, just kind of like, how have you like managed that? Because it's also kind of unfortunate that it's happening like right when you're getting started. So have you felt um, any kind of like hits from that or, or have you been like spared somehow? Well, um, to be continued, I suppose, <laughs> because it's very much not over. So um, mm. luckily, we had massively loaded up on stock for Black Friday and Christmas. And because it was the first Black Friday um, for Amazon Australia, we had no data on what kind of sales to expect. So we actually really overloaded. Um, and at the time, we were like, oh, damn, you know, it didn't sell as well as we thought. And now we're like, yes, thank goodness, <laughs> because we're not going to sell out because I like massively overordered. Um, so yeah, obviously they were closed for Chinese New Year, which we were expecting. Um, and then 
it's kind of just still Chinese New Year. <laughs> um, and the salespeople are getting back to me and they're like, yeah, yeah, we really want your order. But like the factory is closed and they have to submit to the government to get a permit to reopen and all this stuff. So right now we're ready to reorder products and we can't, I don't think. Um, but we're just waiting. You know, China know how to make money. So I'm sure as soon as possible, they'll be back on the radar. Um, and yeah, we've been lucky that at the moment we're not really selling out. And also we're lucky that in Australia, if you sell out, it's not as much of a like death sentence as it is in America mm -hmm. because, you know, I sound like a broken record, but like Australia is way more flexible. So we quite often sell out of products because we just order a really small initial order just to test the market. So we'll order like literally 50 um, and so it's pretty likely that that product will sell out if it's a success. And so that doesn't seem to matter as much in Australia. So we've been pretty lucky to be not America, that Black Friday wasn't a big success <laughs> um, and that hopefully China will reopen soonish because, yeah, we need them. How is that going? So I know that like it's very early stages and that you're still kind of like trying to like perfect exactly like which products are going to be like wi your winners and which ones um, maybe aren't. But do you mind sharing kind of like figures of how it's going? Yeah, totally. Um, so our goal at the moment is to sell 200 units a week across the whole portfolio. So it's really still pretty small. Um, we have some like top ranked bestseller tag um, products and they're selling like 20, maybe 30 units a week. Um, so the numbers are like minuscule compared to America. But I figure if you can be the top result for some like crazy small keywords, which you would be nowhere near in America. Um, whenever I watch YouTube videos that are joking about um, like, you know, the garlic press, they're like, oh, lol, garlic press. And I'm like, ooh, garlic press. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you can literally be number one for garlic press. Like how crazy is that? Um, and so, yeah, the sales are really small right now, but that's that's all part of the plan. And so I often find people ask me whether they, whether I recommend Australia and I think I would not recommend it to someone who wants money soon. Um, I think it's really mm -hmm. people like us who already have multiple other businesses who are looking for a long-term investment. I think it's reasonably low risk, but, you know, everything in life is pretty risky. So I think it's people who are looking for a long-term play who have time and money to wait. Um, and we're investing quite a lot of time and money now, and we're hoping it will pay off in, like, probably four or five years time will sell, I guess. So I think it's no good for someone who is brand new to being a nomad, wants to get like rolling on FBA. But I think it's an amazing opportunity for someone who has a bit more time to wait. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think it's such a smart play to get in now. And like, like, I, like you said, like to just kind of like plant your flag in as many places as possible. It reminds me of like, you know, I've, I've read like Jack London books of like what it was like of people trying to like grab land in the Yukon or whatever, mm. or in Alaska, you know, around like the gold rush is just like people just planting flags as many times as possible. Um, but in wrapping up, cause I know that we're, you know, almost an hour has like surpassed so quickly. Um, so I gotta <laughs> be respectful of your time, but I also have to ask in wrapping up. So Sarah, my fiance and I were talking about you the other day and, you know, we actually met through Sarah, which is uh, awesome. But we talked about the fact that I feel like you almost have like a Midas touch, like everything that you've done, <laughs> you've had success with and like pretty like great success. You know, you have like almost 30,000 subscribers on YouTube, uh, which is 
really well. You have, you know, really good engagement on Instagram and you have quite a following on Instagram. You're doing phenomenally with Udemy and now with, you know, Amazon and you have all these projects that you've like been really successful at. Most people would be happy with just one of those. What's the secret? You know, what's the rest? What are the rest of us missing? Like, what do you think contributes to that? Oh man, good question. Um, I think being selective about something before you begin, it needs to be the right fit. Um, and when I first became a nomad, I was looking at dropshipping. Um, and actually it was Johnny who said to me, like, Louise, I don't know if dropshipping is the right choice for you. I think you should do Udemy because dropshipping is all about like being super hardcore into the numbers and A-B testing and all the spreadsheets and, you know, like margins and stuff. And he said, Louise, you're really good on camera and you're really charismatic and like you're a good salesperson and you're a good teacher. And so that's a better fit for you. And I'm really glad that I followed that advice. And when I'd been looking into dropshipping, it was so boring to me, <laughs> like trying to read blogs and like all this stuff. And I just thought I wasn't into it. And so I try and only do things which feel like a good natural fit, which I'm naturally motivated to do. Um, and the same with Amazon, like if we were doing just one launch, like the kind of American style, then it probably wouldn't be a good fit for me because it needs to be perfect. Um, it needs to be like very well thought out, very tightly tracked numbers. Um, but with Australia, because the goal is to launch as much as possible, as fast as possible, that fits with me really well. And I really enjoy that. Um, you know, I just want to like bash out a hundred emails and be like, yeah, I did so much today rather than writing one like perfectly crafted email. So I think if something comes naturally to you and you enjoy it, then that's a really good start. Um, and actually the same with my YouTube channel. Like I've never really done it for money or for growth. I just like making videos and I was like, well, if people watch them, that's cool. But I mostly just like telling people what I think and what they should do. <laughs> um, so I was like, great, YouTube seems like a good fit for that. So yeah, I think following things that you enjoy. Um, and it just so happens that I also enjoy making money. So when something goes well, I'm motivated to carry on doing it. And so I think you do need to, if something's not making money early, then I think people need to be better at cutting their ties. Um, so like Udemy, you know, the first month made $30, the second month made $70, you know, the third month made $100. And so it wasn't enough to live, but it was growing. And I was like, okay, if I make money on day one, then this is good. Like people want whatever I'm selling. So let's make more of it. And so I think you do need to be quite tough on the numbers and be like, okay, it has to make money and it should make it quickly. I feel like a lot of people slave away at a business which just isn't working. And through all our different companies, like my husband's got a bunch of companies as well. And when it works, it really works fast. And you just immediately get organic customers and they're referring people and you're kind of making money hand over fist. And the businesses where we've really tried to push it uphill have just never got over the hill, like however hard you push. So we generally try and choose companies which like sell themselves pretty early on. And then we're really not afraid to double down. And once I made one course, I was like, all right, I'm making 40 courses. And once I launched one product, I was like, all right, I'm launching 40 products. <laughs> and so when something's good, like you need to drop everything and chase it. Well, Luis, thank you, you know, so much for stopping by. This has been an awesome uh, interview and I'm super happy that I got to talk to you. Um, in wrapping up, um, where can people get in touch with you or, or is there anywhere you want to send them? Do you want to send them over to some of those Amazon products or to some of the Udemy <laughs> courses? 
yeah, just kind of like where can people find you? Yeah, probably um, YouTube and Instagram are the best places. It's just Digital Nomad Girl um, on both of those. I'm always on Instagram, so you can reach me there. And yeah, if you live in Australia and you want to be sent some of our products, then send me a DM. <laughs> I'd be happy to hook you up. Um, although we don't have a garlic press, so I'll have to let you know once I've launched that if you're in the market for a garlic <laughs> press. Um, but yeah, I was really glad to be on. I really love this podcast. I think you're a very good interviewer, so it's a pleasure to be invited. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Well, I will, uh, we'll have to catch up somewhere around the world, uh, this year or next year, but, uh, yeah, thank you so much for coming by. I, uh, I really appreciate it. Nice. See you soon.